Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our blessed privilege now to open in the Holy Scriptures together, and I invite you to join me in the first chapter of John's Gospel as we look at verses 35 to 51 under the theme, Becoming a Disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'll read a short portion of this passage in John chapter 1, beginning in the 35th verse. Again the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. In this section, we're at the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist in Jordan's River. He's been identified by John as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, says the 29th verse, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that title is rich with significance. It takes us all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis when God slew an animal to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness after their sin. And to Exodus chapter 12, where Moses was commanded to instruct the children of Israel to take a lamb, a firstling of the flock, and to slay it and apply the blood to protect the people during the Passover. It reminds us of Abraham's experience with his son on Mount Moriah, when he took Isaac up on the mountain, but before the knife ever pierced Isaac's tender flesh, the angel of the Lord stayed his hand, and Abraham saw a ram, a male lamb, caught in the thicket by his horns. And the lamb was offered in the place of Isaac. Isaac was set free. A substitute died in his place. A foreshadowing, if you please, of the cross when the Lamb of God would die as the substitute for God's covenant children. So John has identified Jesus as the substitute sacrifice that God has provided to take away the sins of men and women, boys and girls, across all demographic lines, which take away the sin of the world. Now, after his baptism, like a little rivulet of spring water that becomes the head of a mighty rushing river, the Lord begins to build his church by calling the first Christian disciples. And that's what we have in this section in John chapter 1, we have the first Christian disciples called to follow Jesus. And I think there's an interesting point to be gleaned from this idea. Notice this passage teaches us that our Lord Jesus deals with individuals. He does not organize a citywide crusade. 
and appeal to the masses of humanity. But he calls his disciples one at a time, here a little and there a little, in a very personal and individual way. It's not like Jesus chooses his followers like a farmer scoops grain out of a grain bin indiscriminately and generally, but it's very special and individual and particular. In fact, in this section, we find first Andrew and John become followers of Jesus. Then Peter becomes a follower of Jesus. Then Philip, and finally Nathaniel. Now, you and I should be interested in being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? Are you following Jesus in your life? I want to be a disciple. I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only should we be interested in being disciples, we should be interested in making disciples. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go ye into all the world and teach all nations. And the word teach means make disciples. What is the goal of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? We want to make followers of Jesus. Now, you've heard me say before, and I've heard other primitive Baptist ministers say, that that verse does not say, go and make children of God. It is not our business to help the Lord populate heaven. I can't make a child of God. Only the Heavenly Father can make children of God. But you and I can, under the blessing of His grace, make disciples. We can find the Lord's children in this world and call upon them to follow Jesus in their lives. And that really is the first and basic function of the church. That's not the most important function of the church. For after he says, go and teach all nations, then baptize those who believe. Then he says, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And that really is the bulk of our activity in the church. We want to make new converts. We want to make disciples. But my beloved, once they've been baptized, that's not the end of the story. The rest of our lives and the purpose of preaching and worshiping on a week-in and week-out basis is to help each one of us learn to be more obedient, to learn to observe all things that he has taught us in his word. So evangelism and edification, making disciples and then building up the disciples and teaching them to be consistent, more and more obedient to the Lord, that is really the function of the New Testament church. And notice this passage records four brief scenes. I've read one of them to you this morning. And I suspect we'll just get to the first two this morning, maybe the first three, and then look at the last one, God willing, next time. But this passage records four brief scenes in which five people, again, Andrew and probably John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, become disciples or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what disciple means. The Greek word methetes suggests a learner, a student, a follower, and you may know that in that day, it was not uncommon for philosophers to have their followers, their students. The philosopher was the teacher or the master, and these young men walked around with him. Think of Greek culture. Maybe you've got 
in your mind pictures of Athens, Greece, the Areopagus, you know, Mars Hill, like you read about in the Bible. And you've heard of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and some of these ancient leaders. Well, philosophers would gather their students around them and they would teach them on the hillsides. And wherever the philosopher went, the disciples would follow. And the disciples were seeking to learn to be like the master. They wanted to think like him, to respond to life like he responded. The whole purpose of a master-disciple or a teacher-learner relationship is for the student to become like the teacher. And by the way, that's the same dynamic that exists in our school systems, educational systems today. And that's why it's so important to have godly teachers is because the students are going to become like the person that they spend the most time with. And that's why it's so important in homes for parents to model with integrity the principles of God's word because their children are going to grow up to think like, to respond to life like, to act like, to talk like their parents. You see, that's the kind of relationship we're talking about here in discipleship. A disciple seeks to become like his teacher, his master. So John had his disciples, John the Baptist. You remember when John came preaching in the wilderness, and that's what the first part of John chapter 1, beginning in about the 19th verse, records for us. When John came preaching, people came out of the communities to follow him, to hear him, to be baptized of him, and they became his followers. And we pick it up now in our text, John 1.35. The next day after John stood and two of his disciples, John looked upon Jesus as he walked. And for the second time, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, John had already taught his disciples that I am not the Christ. I've come to bear witness of the Christ. He that cometh after me, John says, is preferred before me. He's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose the latches of his shoes. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes, John says. I'm just the forerunner, and the one that I'm announcing that is coming is the anticipated Christ or Messiah. And finally, when Jesus shows up, now remember John was about six months older than Jesus. You know that, don't you? Elizabeth and Zechariah had been visited by the angel and told that they would have a child, and they bore John the Baptist. Now, Elizabeth was barren, but in her old age, God blessed her to bear a child. And Mary was Elizabeth's cousin, and when she heard that her cousin was expecting a child in her old age, Mary herself had been visited by the angel and told that she would bring forth the Messiah, made a trip to spend some time with Elizabeth. And you can read about that exchange in the other gospel accounts. Anyway, John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. But they've really had little to do with each other in their childhood. In fact, as far as we know, they never interacted beyond that intrauterine transaction at the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. So when John sees Jesus... Suddenly, I guess the Holy Spirit must have revealed to him that this is not only my cousin, but this is the Messiah. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
And you know the word behold means look and consider. Take notice. And I want to say to everyone here this morning, you and I need to behold the Lamb of God. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Think about him. Consider him. You know, you say, well, I've been beholding the sitcoms on television. I've been beholding the basketball games. I've been beholding the Super Bowl. Or I've been beholding what's happening on the political landscape. I want to tell you, here's the purpose of public worship like you're here this morning. It helps us to retrain our gaze, our focus on the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need to think often about Jesus Christ, God's Lamb the sacrifice he provided for poor sinners like us. So John says, here he is. He identifies Jesus. He baptizes him, identifies him twice. And it says the two disciples of John, verse 37, which heard John speak, it says they followed Jesus. So suddenly they leave John and they go to the church down the road. <laughs> They leave John as his disciples and they become followers of Jesus. But notice they're following him from a distance. And it's going to name one of these disciples. His name is Andrew, the 40th verse. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now we're not given the name of the second disciple. But I suggest for consideration it's probably John the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. For it is characteristic of him never to call himself by name. He doesn't refer to himself by name anywhere in the Gospel of John. And so the fact that this second disciple is not named here suggests to me that he's probably talking about himself. So let's say the first two disciples here are Andrew and most likely the Apostle John. And notice it says Jesus, when he turned, he saw them following and he saith unto them, What seek ye? Now I want to say these first two disciples of Jesus who are following him at a distance. They've left John. John has said, There's the Lamb of God. And they've decided to inquire more. They're interested. They're inquisitive. They're intrigued. They're seeking. But evidently they're a bit cautious. And when Jesus turns and he sees that they're following him, he asks them this question, What seek ye? What do you want? I want to say that that question underscores a very important need in your life and mine. It's the need to think seriously about your life. The question that Jesus poses is, what are you seeking? And I would ask you that this morning. What are you looking for? What is your objective in life? I think we would agree that many people never consider that question. They live mindlessly, driven by the winds of circumstance governed by the tyranny of the urgent, just simply existing in life. They get up in the morning and get their cup of coffee and, you know, eat a bowl of cereal and they're off to work and they just go through the same routines and they never take time to ask themselves, what is the purpose of my existence? What do I really need? What am I seeking? They live for food, raiment, shelter, and money in their bank account. And they live mindlessly. You know, the fifth chapter of Ephesians tells us to walk circumspectly. That is, walk with wisdom. The idea of circumspection, notice the etymology. The root of the word spect, spectacles, means to see. 
What is the first part of that compound word? It, it, we get the word circumference from it. Circumspectly means to see in a circle. Now you probably have peripheral vision and that is the ability to look at one object and then to notice things around you. So there's a sense in which each of us see in a circle. And when he says we're to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, he's saying that you're to live your life with focus and with wisdom, noticing what is happening around you. Because the foolish man does not think about the way that he's living. He's living mindlessly, thoughtlessly, just existing on automatic pilot. So Jesus' question to these two is, what are you looking for, is a good question for you and me this morning, my beloved. How important it is to reflect on the meaning of life. So very, very important. Think about your life. Take time to consider why am I here? What is my purpose? Psalm 32, verse 8, the Lord says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way that thou shalt go. Now, that's a tremendous promise. God says, I will teach you the way to go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Then notice the very next verse. Be ye not as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And he says, don't act like a common animal. An animal does not live thoughtfully. In fact, he has to be ruled by force. His mouth is held with bit and bridle, lest he come near unto thee. If you want him to be productive, you've got to control him. But the psalmist is telling us here by divine inspiration that we should live our lives with wisdom and not be like an animal. They have no understanding. So you live trusting in God to guide. Live thoughtfully. What seek ye? I want to ask you this morning, do you ask yourself the question, what am I truly seeking? What am I living for? What is the purpose and the significance of my life? Andrew and John were seekers. And Jesus asks them, what is it that you're seeking? And here's their answer. They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master or teacher, where dwellest thou? Now, I have to admit that this question seems a bit anticlimactic. I mean, you have one opportunity to ask Jesus a salient and important question, and the only thing that you know to ask is, where do you live? <laughs> and that's sort of one of the first questions we ask people, isn't it? We say, what is your name? Where are you from? And what do you do for a living? And that's the most basic kinds of fact-finding that we do when making a new acquaintance. And they're dealing at the superficial level. Master, where dwellest thou? But they are interested. They're intrigued. I want to say this morning that some disciples of Jesus become his followers because they are seeking. And anytime you find a seeker, somebody who's searching for God, searching for truth, somebody who's inquiring for the light of understanding, who's intrigued and interested, that is evidence that that person has been born again already. You may know that there is an entire movement that began in the 1990s in the mega churches in our country, particularly at Willow Creek 
community church in the suburbs of Chicago when Bill Hybels was pastor there called the seeker-sensitive church model. And the seeker-sensitive model was based on this principle that everybody is seeking for God. Therefore, we need to provide something to intrigue them so that we can get them here because we have a Starbucks on our church campus. And they like Starbucks, so we'll get them here, and then while they're here, we will be able to talk to them about the Lord. That was the seeker-sensitive model. Well, may I suggest for consideration, dear friends, that personally speaking, I disagree that everybody is seeking God. I don't believe that everybody is seeking God. You say, well, Brother Mike, what do you mean? That people are hungry. They have a hunger. They do have a desire for peace. They do have a desire for freedom. People do have a desire for personal fulfillment. But they're looking in every place other than the one place that it can come. They're seeking the benefits of God without the God who gives those benefits. In fact, until a person's born again, they will never seek for God himself. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 describes total depravity, the doctrine that man is fallen in sin. And it says that there is none that understandeth and there is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fact is, by nature, my beloved, you and I are not born with a desire for God. We're born with a desire for self-fulfillment, that's for sure. But you've shown me somebody who really wants to know about God, who has a hunger and thirst for righteousness, who has a passion for truth. I'll show you somebody who gives evidence of a work of grace in his or her heart. A God-seeker is somebody who gives evidence of regeneration. But you know, there are people out there in the world today whom God has visited in his grace and who are hungry and they want something, but they don't know what it is. They want to know something. I believe as soon as a person's born again, he's given a spiritual appetite and hunger and thirst. You know, in uh, Psalm 42, 1, the psalmist says, my soul thirsteth for God. That he knew that he was thirsty for God. I want to ask you today, dear friends, are you thirsty for God? I'm saying that we all have needs and desires. But God is the only one who can meet those needs and desires. Jesus said on one occasion that if a man drinks of the water that I give him, he will never thirst again. It'll satisfy him. But you know, that's not true in this world. Everything that the world offers, my beloved, leaves you wanting and lacking. It just doesn't satisfy the deep needs of the soul. Man offers diversions, but diversions can't fill the void that is in a regenerate heart. Only God can meet that need. Psalm 63 verse 1 says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, as in a dry and thirsty land. I want to ask you, dear friend, have you learned that this world is a desert place and it can't meet the deep needs of the little child of grace? Only the presence and blessing of the Lord Jesus can satisfy your heart. So Andrew and John are seeking, they're interested, 
And Jesus, I love how he responds to them. The Lord Jesus is warm and welcoming to those that seek him as he demonstrates on this occasion. He says, when they ask him, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, come and see. And it reads, they came and saw where he dwelt. And they abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So the tenth hour, measured from midnight, in a Jewish day would be about 10 a.m. That means from about 10 a.m. until, say, 4 p.m., right before dusk sets in. For about six hours at least, they have spent time in the personal residence of Jesus, which was likely his mother's residence in Nazareth. Andrew and John go and spend the day with Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what they talked about, but for six hours at least, don't you know that they had wonderful conversations with Jesus? These two seekers are interested in him, and Jesus notices them, and by the way, he notices those who are seeking him today. I believe God has little children in our community who've been born again, and they have a hunger that they're trying to satisfy, a passion. And I want to say that the junk food of this world doesn't seem to meet the need. You can get a, an immediate sugar high from a bag of M&Ms or some cotton candy, and it'll make you feel excited for a moment, but I'll tell you, it'll leave you wanting, right? It's not like a full course meal. And the world can give you momentary enjoyment or pleasure, but it doesn't give deep, solid joy. I love the words of John Newton's hymn, Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. There is a need in your heart. I wonder if I'm describing anyone here this morning. There's a need in you that this world can never fill. You've tried it. You've looked You've sought for something to give you peace. You've looked in the medicine cabinet and thinking maybe this will solve my problems. And it does help to alleviate symptoms and make life more bearable. But my beloved, may I say it doesn't really reach the cause of your spiritual appetite. You've looked into diversions, entertainment. You thought, I'm going to get involved in music. I love the different music genres. And I'm going to just throw myself into learning everything I can about the music of this world. Or perhaps you say, I'm going to get involved in entertainment, in recreation. I'm going to take up tennis, or golf, or bowling, or macrame, or ceramics, or karate. Or something that will give me peace and happiness and make me feel that my life is fulfilled. My beloved, what are you seeking today? Again, my point is that only God can meet you at the point of your deepest need and can satisfy your yearning and your hunger and your thirst. Now, I hope you know I'm talking to God's children. I'm talking to people who've been born again. But at the same time, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, some people start on this journey of following Jesus because they realize they're seeking something. And they're intrigued, but they want to sort of keep their distance. And aren't you glad this Savior is warm and welcoming? And he turns and he says, come and see. Come and see. What a wonderful invitation that is, come and see. Because the best teacher is experience. 
Jesus is teaching us that here. Come see for yourself. You know, I can tell you about the church. I can tell somebody about, you know, our preacher, our singing. And they say, well, that sounds intriguing. But the best invitation to somebody is come and see for yourself. Come and see, come and experience it. You know, there's something about the truth of the gospel of grace that's better felt than taught. It's better experienced than described. I can describe to somebody the joy of the gospel of free grace, the freedom that it's given me, the truth shall set you free. I can tell somebody about that, but it just goes in one ear and out the other, and most people are polite about it. So, well, that's, that's nice. But you know, if somebody's truly seeking there's nothing that can meet that need except the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus asked his disciples one time when many were departing and leaving him. John chapter 6, he turned to the 12 and said, will you also go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You've got the only message that suits my case. And if the Holy Ghost has ever convicted you of your sins and shown you that you're a no good, hell-deserving sinner, in and of yourself, then the only message that will truly suit your case is the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think of the words of Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, when we're talking about people who are seeking the way, people who are looking, people who are interested, people who recognize they have a need. Matthew chapter 13 is the chapter that records many of the kingdom parables. And it says this in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Now here's, here's a businessman who's going out and he's trying to gather the best pearls that he can find, goodly pearls. He's a merchant man. So he's going to different places perhaps trying to build his inventory. But notice this while he's on his search. It says he found one pearl of great price. Now he's looking for good pearls, but he finds one that is unique. And it says, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. He liquidated his inventory. He got rid of it all just so he could purchase and secure that one pearl. My beloved, the pearl of great price in this world is the fellowship of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, the presence of Jesus in your life. And if you're a seeker today, if you're looking for something and you say, I know it has something to do with God, but I don't know where to find it. You know, have you ever gone to a store and you've seen 50 different brands of the same item and you say, I don't even know where to start. You know, I mean, how do I make a decision? And you try to research it, but you know... By the time you've researched it all, the store has closed and you'll have to come back tomorrow. And uh, you say it's just overwhelming. And there are many of God's little children in this world, no doubt, who are looking for that which will meet their needs. If that is your case, and you find that pearl of great price, you say, I'm willing to let go of everything else just for that single pearl. Jesus Christ, the fellowship of Jesus the knowledge of his finished work, the presence of his Holy Spirit, the fellowship of his people, that, my beloved, is the pearl of great price in this world. The hymn writer says it like this, I've found a richer treasure that none on earth can know. There are seekers. Jeremiah 50 verse 4, 
says it like this. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God, they shall ask the way to Zion. With their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten, for my people have been lost sheep. Now notice they're still sheep, but they're lost. And they're seeking for something. They're asking the way to Zion. And God in his providence no doubt gives people signposts to point the way. And his people who found it should be willing to go and spread the news to others. As we learn now in the continuation of this narrative, Andrew and John have come and spent the day with Jesus. And they have found something in him. It says in verse 40 now. One of the two which heard John speak, that is John the Baptist, remember back at the beginning of this narrative, they were John's disciples and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. How would you like to be Andrew, known only as Simon Peter's brother? Why didn't he call Peter Andrew's brother, you know? But everybody knows Peter. <laughs> He's the more famous of the disciples. Andrew, not so much, but Andrew was first on the scene. He became a follower of Jesus First, and God used him to bring Peter to an understanding of who Jesus was. Look at the next verse. He first findeth his own brother Simon. Now we're talking about the first disciples of Jesus. After his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry, how does he begin to build his entourage? Not again through a citywide crusade and mass evangelism, a mass appeal, you know, just sort of throwing it out there and Come one, come all, but it's very personal. And that's the way the Lord still works with his people today. He still works with individuals. He works with those who are seeking him and he sees them seeking. He notices the little child of grace who's saying, Lord, show me the way. Lord, give me something. I know that I'm missing something. Lord, I need to know the path of truth. And Lord, please help me. He notices them and he says, what is it that you're looking for? Come and see. And then, my friends, after they've seen, notice what Andrew does. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So some people become followers of the Lord Jesus because they are seeking him. Others, because they are encouraged to come to Christ by a happy and confident believer. And I want you to notice how instinctive is the impulse when someone has discovered a treasure to tell someone else about it. You ever been told a secret and you thought, you know, my first knee-jerk reaction is to share it with somebody else. I know something and others need to know it, but maybe you've been sworn to secrecy and it's very hard to keep that secret. What about finding a treasure? Have you ever stumbled upon a gold mine, upon a windfall? You ever found a $20 bill? I would almost guarantee you that you went and told somebody, I found a $20 bill, just stumbled on. You know, it's hard to find something special to you and not share it with others. And that's what Andrew does. It's almost a natural instinct for him to go and tell Peter about what he's found. He first findeth his own brother. Now notice Andrew and John found Jesus. You know, of course, John the Baptist found him, said, Behold the Lamb of God, pointed him out, and they followed him. 
And now Andrew turns and he finds his own brother. He goes home. And I want to say that home, those who are nearest and dearest to us by the ties of nature, is the first and best mission field for making disciples. Home. Jesus told the wild Gadarene after he had restored him to his right mind. I mean, here's a man, Mark chapter 5 is the story, you can read it, who lived in the tombs, he was dwelling in the cemetery, no doubt a terror to the neighborhood and a terror to himself. He was cutting himself, I mean, self-harm. And he was jumping up on the tombstones and, you know, howling at the children and the parents of that community, no doubt, had warned their children, you stay away from that man, he's crazy, he's not all there, something's wrong with him. He was just a menace to society, but Jesus came and calmed him down. He cast out the demons that possessed this man, and it says when people saw him, he was clothed and sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. And he rose up and he wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, no, go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you. And I want to say, my beloved, that home is one of the first and best fields for sharing the gospel, for telling others what great things the Lord has done for you. Has Jesus changed your life? Tell the people that are nearest and dearest on earth to you about it. I want to say if we could simply be blessed to just influence our own families, to save our own loved ones to the church, the perpetuity of the true gospel in our community would not be in question. God help us this morning to talk to our spouses, to talk to our children, to talk to our parents, and to read the scriptures with them, to be real for church and the gospel of Christ to be central in our hearts and lives. That's what a disciple is, somebody who lives to follow Jesus. It's not just an add-on one day of the week, but it's everything about us, my beloved, is taken up with following the Lord Jesus. God help us to first find our own brothers and to share with them what great things the Lord has done for our souls. I'm afraid that in my life, I've too often been an impediment to my own family. They've seen a double standard, perhaps, in what I professed publicly and how I conducted myself privately. And it has had the very opposite effect. May God have mercy upon me and upon all of us this morning that serving the Lord Jesus would be the priority in our life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that others would not think that we're hypocrites, our families. You remember when Lot was told by the men that visited him that judgment is coming on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom and was sitting in the city gate involved in civic affairs. And the implication is that he had made compromises. I doubt any real moral compromises as far as his sexual ethic was concerned, but Lot had compromised with the community. And do you remember that it says that when Lot told his children that judgment was coming, it says he seemed to them as one that mocked. He seemed to be a hypocrite. And not just our own households, dear friends, but the people in our personal circles of influence, our neighborhoods. Get to know your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends. I read a statistic not long ago that said 85% of people that attend 
church for the first time come as a result of the invitation of a satisfied church member. Think about that. 85% of people that come to a church come at the invitation of a satisfied church member. Only about 5% come as a result of the pastor's invitation. And the other 10% consisted of people who came because they had a history, family history at the church, and they would visit, you know, out of respect for the past. Or some saw an advertisement, maybe in the newspaper, and a few just happened to stumble upon it, just drove by and thought, hey, that, I think I'll go in there. But 85% of people that attend churches come as a result of the people that are satisfied with that church telling other people about it. Oh, my friends, first find your own family, like Andrew did. So we have in this passage two men who are seeking, another who is encouraged to come to Christ in discipleship by a loved one that is sold on the benefit of it. And you say, well, Brother Mike, how should I invite somebody? I mean, that's easier said than done. I feel very awkward about it. We shouldn't feel awkward about it. I mean, just tell them what Andrew said on this occasion. We have found the Messiah. Point them to Christ. We have found the Messiah. Point them to Christ. You don't want to invite people for the sake of our peculiarities. Come hear our preacher because he's unique. But come here because Christ is honored. You want to hear about a successful Savior? Not a foiled, frustrated, defeated Savior. But you want to hear about one who's victorious, who's won the battle? and point them to Christ. We have found the Messiah because that's what we want. We want people coming who are seeking Jesus Christ. Their hearts are hungry for him. That's what we have to offer. We can tell them about Jesus. And I want you to notice as we close that Jesus already knows all about Simon. When Peter comes, verse 42 says, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, Thou shalt be called Cephas. Now, how strange is that interaction? (laughs) I thought one time I was going to preach sometime about the politically incorrect things that Jesus said and did. You remember when the woman came to him and said, Lord, have mercy upon me. My daughter is sick. It says he answered her not a word. Then he said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. (laughs) That's just not what we would expect. Last week, we were talking about John chapter 11. Mary and Martha sending a message, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus delayed two more days before he started on the journey to come. And you say, that's just not what I would expect Jesus to do. May I suggest our Lord Jesus doesn't always meet the definitions of what culture says is politically correct. And on this occasion, you wouldn't expect the first words out of his mouth to a new acquaintance to be, I'm changing your name. Somebody says, my name's Simon. Well, your name from henceforth is going to be Peter, which means a stone. But that's exactly what Jesus does on this occasion. And it shows us, dear friends, when it says he brought him to Jesus, when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. How did Jesus know all of this about Peter? Because he's omniscient. He knows everybody. The very next chapter says he knows all men and he knows what is in man. And he knows you and me this morning, my friend, through and through. He knows every one of us. There's nothing that we hide from him. Now, we hide from others, but I'll tell you, he sees us. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him. 
And notice what he does to Peter. He changes his name. Now, the Old Testament precedent for changing names is when someone had encountered God, God often changed their names when they had had an encounter with God. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And here Simon, whose name means shifting sand, ambivalent, unsteady, untrustworthy, the Lord changes his name to Peter, which means a stone. You know what this is? This is a pledge to transform the character of Peter through sanctifying grace. Peter, by nature, was rash, self-confident, impetuous, headstrong, but Jesus intends to make him stable and strong like a rock. And the future narrative of Peter's life, if you read it and look back then with 2020 hindsight to this moment when Jesus changed his name, testifies to the sanctifying and transforming power of Jesus Christ in Peter's life. I want to say Jesus, my beloved, can make your life and my life into something better than what we thought it would ever be. You say today, Brother Goins, I'm just, I have so many personality issues. I'm just so ambivalent and I'm so untrust and I have this tendency in me to be deceptive and to try to get by with as much as I can. Jesus can transform your life, my beloved. And he proved that in Peter's life and changing his name at the very outset is his indication that he intends to do that in Peter's life. Now, we've talked about two people who were seeking Jesus and they became his disciples. Another who was brought to Jesus through the encouragement of these satisfied believers. And my friends, we still have two more episodes in this passage, Philip's conversion and then Nathaniel's, which is the one I'm really excited about looking at and the Lord willing, we'll try to look at that soon. I want to encourage you today to cease to follow your own way in life, and listen to Jesus' imperative, follow me. Instead of following your own agenda, instead of listening to your own inclinations, become a Christ follower in your life. From this day forward, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to quit living for myself. I'm going to start living for the one who loved me and died for me. I want to live like he lived, walk where he walked, think like he thought, I want to have the attitudes and the mind of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. God help you and me to be genuine, authentic Christians, followers of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's really the purpose of the church, is to take those who've come and to help them learn to be consistent followers of Jesus. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee calling, come, follow.
Jesus, where?